Hi, and welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is Amy Mullins. Amy is actually impossible to define in any single category. She is an American athlete, actress, model, and public speaker. She was born with a medical condition that resulted in the amputation of both of her lower legs when she was one year old. She was told that she'd use a wheelchair for the rest of her life, but by the age of two, she was walking with prosthetics. If you've met or spent five minutes talking to Amy, you can believe this is true. She is indomitable. She went on to be the first amputee to compete against able-bodied athletes in the National Collegiate Athletic Association events, and then went on to compete in the Paralympics in 1996 in Atlanta. She is a model, has opened the catwalk for Alexander McQueen, an actress who starred in multiple TV shows and movies, a motivational speaker, and has given some of the most downloaded TED Talks of all time. I loved our conversation. We talked for hours and Brie had her work cut out for her getting this down to an hour for you. Amy spoke to me from her apartment in Manhattan. Amy Mullins, thank you so much for being my guest. This is such a treat and a pleasure. And I was so thrilled to get your book list. I loved diving into this list. I really did. I've had you and Krista Tippett this week and it's been so fun. I love sometimes just how the calendar works and what the combinations of books are that I'm immersing in and where they overlap and where they're different. And um, anyway, I, I just, I loved yours. Some I knew, some I didn't at all. And I have loved so much discovering the ones that I didn't know. Uh, second circle right here already yes. Ill- marked up and clearly about to become a handbook for life. So um, before we even start, just thanks for making the time. Thanks for being here. And no, thanks for sharing thank you. your books really with me. It's really, so it's really, you when you think about books that shaped you, you know, a huge part of when I kept adding to this list were eight, before I was 18. And and I thought about that, like what, you know, I had to really, really go through, I mean, the, the bookshelf, but also the, the mental bookshelf, because so much of my life is still in storage the last four years. I'm just pulling it out now. It's like, it was like mm. you're finding old friends that you haven't seen on your bookshelf mm-hmm. in a while, but thinking about books that have shaped me in the way that childhood books shape you or even when you're a teenager I found mm. you know it, more of a difficult task and that's where that Rodenberg book absolutely mm. uh, earned its place there but so many of my other what I realized when I was compiling this as I was telling you is that I was I very much gravitated towards the macabre <laughs> and it shouldn't have been a surprise mm. to me because at some point, my parents called the school library, and I was uh, banned. Didn't work. But I was banned from checking out any more ghost stories, or I had read every every one wow. multiple times. You know, my um, kind of beauty icons were Lily Munster and Morticia Adams. You know, and and yes, uh-huh. Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman, but but very. I loved being scared. Those stories, mm. obviously myths, myths and legends. You know, we had the I had Greek, Roman, Norse, mm. and Celtic, um, mm. which I find as I've been talking to other people about books, their books. That's such a, a formative one for so many people. Mm. I realized actually when I met my my now husband probably for a decade before that I was reading almost exclusively nonfiction. And I was, you know, in these, mm. in this world of being invited to, you know, design conferences and these kinds of think tank environments where it's, it's like, I'd find out who I was going to be seated with at dinner. And it's like, Oh my God, I have to learn string theory. You know, so you're just completely all of these books on myself are basically you know, <laughs> Ray Kurzweil and all these kinds of, um, you know, Sherry Turkle, yes. these, these books about technology and, and this idea of 
transhumanist and, you know, because I was finding myself actually the subject of, of more than, more than a few academic papers and, and books uh, that were hmm. basically putting me into this world and I didn't know anything about it. What was that like? It's, it's off, off topic and yet not because it relates directly to biography and, and literature well, and the was, intersection of the two. This idea that, that to take Ray Kurzweil, like the singularity that for, for Ray, he mm. posited, I think in the late sixties that by 2029, man and machine would be fused and he was laughed and, and you know, there was always kind of a first time I ever, I ever met him was he showed up as a, you know, as a hologram in a conference. I was speaking, I was speaking with one, with a scientist on stage in, 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 in Italy. And he was the third guy on our panel and he went through a hologram. And it was the first uh-huh. time I was really, I really understood his, what he was saying. It basically computers started as these massive things that took up football fields of room. And then at some point the personal computer, and then it becomes the handheld phone and then it becomes Google glass or, or, you know, an implant and his Mm. predictions with, with regard to how much technology is used into our daily life are alarmingly, alarmingly on track. You know, it's it's basically like on the X, Y curve, it's sort of this, Mm. I have to reverse it for you. Um, that way, it starts starts like this, and 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 it's yeah. like man and machine just coasting along parallel, and then it goes, and it's mm. and it, we've seen that. It's mm. just in the last twenty years, our technology has changed so much, mm. and how mm. that's integrated into our humanity. So it's not just say the prosthetic of a of a phone, which has on our maps all of our details, our, you know, our address book, everything that we feel somehow mm. unable to function out in the world if we don't have these devices. Many, many of us feel that way. Mm. Um, how else does it expand into this idea of designing our bodies? So it was something I came to mm. personally from a very childlike place. It was just wonder. The idea of being shaped by something, though, and having a book hit you on another level is, I think, a question that I've actually really enjoyed spending time with it because it is difficult, but it, mm. but it's so worthwhile. I'm so glad that you have to find out what what does it even mean to you to be shaped by something. Yes. Yeah. I think so too. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed sitting with it. I um, I still love asking it, so that's a relief to hear. Let's start with your first book, which is a book I didn't know and I've already ordered for my daughter because like you, Billy has a, a taste for the macabre that both leaves Davy and I bewildered. I mean, I, I love a bit of goth, but this is a whole nother level. She's just... It, it, if she's not frightened oh, out of wow. her wits, it hasn't been a good story. So sh- I can't wait for this book to arrive. Your first book is The Wicked Pigeon Isn't Ladies in title? the Garden, which is a great title, which was published in 1968 by Mary Chase. Um, tell me how old you were, if you can, when you remember reading it, what you, what drew you to it? What was the, what happened to you before, after, during? I'm going to say it was it? around eight or nine and I would have come across it in the school library uh-huh. because, well, I had read everything. You know, it was, I'd read everything else. I remember as a child actually being really turned off by that title. It just sounded so bizarre. Like, hmm. you know, who cares about pigeon ladies? But there was something about, you know, the first few pages, this, this the heroine, Maureen, is a really scrappy girl. She's unpalatable mm. she's she spits at people when they're if they say something she doesn't like she's known as a like a hard slapper a stay after schooler um you know general kind of everything that that little girls aren't allowed to be or told they could be and in fact when i was trying to figure out which 
which childhood book would be one we discuss. The other, the, the, the other one that I think Billy would love is called Ghosts I Have Been by Richard Peck. And this is the heroine of that story set in 1915, mm-hmm. 14 or 15, and Blossom Culp is a, a girl quite literally from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, she's, her mom is sort of a, a Roma woman fortune teller. And so she's, she's incessantly sort of made fun of and abused by everyone in school. And, and she's like, you know, again, she's this scrappy girl who couldn't rely on her looks, couldn't rely on any connections of any sort and ends up on these incredible adventures that bring her to London and she goes to Madame Tussauds and she sees the Sleeping Beauty with the chest that rises and falls, which when I was 19, my first trip to London, I stood outside in a heat wave, 105 in mm. London. <laughs> We're just clutching, clutching <laughs> um, Ribena or something like that and waiting to get into this tourist destination just to see Breathing. Yeah. Of course it is. The breathing. So this, the Mary the Mary that's I realized that's why I was drawn to both of these books. And and indeed many of a child. I was drawn to these stories of the the, the heroine. It didn't matter that they were male or female at all, but there had they had to be scrappy. You know, I liked I liked the fact that they were resourceful. And especially with regards to Maureen, the heroine of the, of the Wicked Pigeon Lady of the Garden, that she was, you know, an unpleasant, basically un, an unpleasant child, but in the name of her own, that was her self-defense. That was the way that she mm. pushed back against the world that was pushing on her. And she ends up... Um, spraying the neighbor lady with a hose or something like that. And she gets chased and she runs and there's this old Victorian mansion at the end of her block or maybe a few blocks somewhere in the neighborhood, but it's boarded up and big chain link fence around that's all boarded up. And it has, it's definitely a haunted place. And they, kids would dare each other and no one would ever dare to actually cross break in, jump the fence, whatever, but she, she does because out of necessity, she's being chased. And when she goes in, she actually goes through the house and there's these incredible portraits, seven sisters going up this grand staircase of this decrepit falling down. You know, I was already like, yes, I'm in, I'm in. Haunted house, I'm in. But these the, the paintings, and she had something nasty to say about every girl in, in the, each painting. And then she started to feel like the paintings were moving. Like it, it, One of them had a, a handkerchief in her hand, and then suddenly her hand was behind her back or something like that. So weird things start to happen, and she ends up stealing a bracelet that had belonged to one of these sisters from the Victorian era and it essentially is like a portal and she travels through time. So again, another amazing thing that I was super interested in as a kid, the idea Mm -hmm. that you could move through the universe Mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, we're we're not, we we are constrained. We can't do that. And Mm -hmm. it was very attractive to me. So she ends up in this thing and they are 10 times worse and more horrible and more ruthless than she ever <laughs> dreamt of being. So it's like the original sort of meat. She, she gets out mean girl. In a big way. <laughs> Did you relate to the scrappy girl? Were you a scrappy girl? Yeah. Yeah. I had to be, you know, I mean, you're a kid growing up in Allentown, Pennsylvania you know, mostly and, and um, with wooden legs, it's like you're an easy mm-hmm. target. And yeah, you know, my parents weren't cool parents. They, my mom graduated from high school and went into the convent, thought she wanted to be a Franciscan nun. 
stayed there for years. Wow. My dad, you know, was growing up on a farm in Ireland and basically, you know, worked since he was he hadn't been in school since fifteen and the plasterer like his father before and his father before and so they both sort of missed the sixties. And I remember my high school boyfriend, his mom had the white album and like, you know, she was at Woodstock and my parents listened to the, you know, Pennsylvania six, 5,000. Like they listened to. Sure. You know, or my, my dad would listen to Johnny Cash, but, but um, yeah, like I, I found it just was, they were like parents from the 1930s, not the eighties. Mm. So did they, have a love of books did they read to you where did that come from was that your escape it was my escape I mean I spent a lot of time in hospitals as a little girl and that's where you just books are your salvation it's it's, yeah uh, in a way that I feel like today you know you could have an iPad and watch a film that just wasn't happening yeah one tv for the entire board and it went off at yeah it was 7 38 o'clock at night and yeah, so it was books. And I knew my, mm. my mom, my mom taught me how to read. I remember her again, just because there was a lot of time where I was in plaster casts and, and mm-hmm. essentially immobile um, mm. on the lower part of my body. And so she, I was reading, I could read very well and, at an advanced level at a very young age and, and mm. did, but I, you know, my parents, I mean, my dad read the newspaper every day, but it wasn't like that. It was like they, they, the profit is on their coffee table. It has been my mm-hmm. entire life. And I don't know if I read it. <laughs> like, I don't know. So I'm always like, really? But they own it. Yeah. <laughs> It's always like men like an interesting bit of evidence to like maybe you were maybe you were cooler when you were younger. <laughs> maybe you maybe you were cooler. But maybe you had this moment before you know before you became a parent. Um, that, that thing uh-huh. as a as a kid when you realize hey, you were a person before you had. I know. There's this whole mysterious yes. other life, yes, right? Other it's life. bewildering. So I I don't. They weren't. Um, I devoured books and. Mm. And I, you know, when it was a rainy day, nothing better. Go into the basement yeah. and I would lay there and just read and read. And, I mean, I was mm. reading stuff that I, children probably, like, my mom had a copy of the Thornbirds because that was sort of the mm. rage in the late 70s, I think. And, yeah, um, sure. And I just remember, fine, like, it was very racy where it's like a good-looking priest Oh yeah, it's a pretty yeah, sexy, sexy book. book totally. Right? So I, you know that. Sure, we could all have a good time with that now. I, I, yeah, totally. Your second book is *Le Mort d'Arthur* by Sir Thomas Mallory, and uh, it was written in 1469. <laughs> although it wasn't published until 1485, it was one of the first books that Caxton published, which I didn't know until I started digging yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about this, because this is very specific. This is not Arthurian legends or tales of King Arthur or Susan Cooper, you know, the dark rising. This is Le Mort d'Arthur. So tell me why and when this book appeared in your life. Well, I did devour all the, every kind of Arthurian book I could get my hands mm-hmm. on. I knew, the, I, really, I knew that whole family tree. I, I really knew all the knights and, and then I was in, you know, honors English in, in high school. And to this day, I mean, it was far more difficult what that teacher made us do than, than anything I faced in university afterward. It was, mm. We had to write, I did a 25 page paper, turn paper on the crucible. Basically when I figured out that I could do these term papers, but on books that had content I gravitated towards. So yes, I want to write about yes. the witch hunt in Salem. Sure. Um, and, and then for my final year, it was a 35 page term paper and naively I picked that. 
and had him have to read it in the in the Middle English. <laughs> um, and you know, there was no at least at that time there was no sort of cliff notes, and she would know that te- that teacher would have known if you had tried. There was sure. no um, compressing this thing, and actually, I didn't yes. want to compress it because I loved that world. And again, I was excited and drawn to these stories where women had agency. Hmm. And, you know, the, one of the, 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 one of the side stories, I think also Sir Thomas Mallory wrote about uh, Gawain, Sir Gawain, who's Arthur's nephew and the, the loathly lady. Uh, hmm. Is is so interesting because I reread it while I was thinking about these. And do you know that story about about? I do, I do. I studied that at, at college. Oh, so yeah. you remember how Dame Ragnall and and um, Arthur's alone in the forest. He, he kills a, a stag, and somehow he becomes unarmed. He just killed the stag, but um, and this knight comes upon him who is armed and says, these, these lands were taken from me. They're rightfully mine. They're taken from me by Sir Gawain. And I'm going to give you one year to answer this question or else um, this time next year, I'm going to decapitate you. And the question was, what do women really want? And I thought even in the, In the 13th century, the 12, you know, when, when these stories are taken, obviously from French stories, and but that that, sure. that that has been a question that men. Have. That's still the burning, the burning issue of the day. <laughs> what do these damn women want? And so he comes back. He tells Gawain this story, and Gawain's like, like, you know, let's go, let's ride around the country and find out. Let's ask everyone, and they do. Hmm. Um, and Gawain still thinks this is possible to solve this, but but so some months into it, Arthur is getting depressed and he, he sees the futility of it and he goes back into the forest for inspiration and comes across this woman, the, the loathly lady, um, Dame Ragnall. They actually refer to her as a hag. And she says, I know I'll help you with this answer, provided I marry Gawain. And Arthur's like, oh no, this is a this is a this is a bad bargain, and but Gawain does it. Says, you know, you're my my king, and 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 of course I'll do whatever to save you. And so he comes back and he says he's he's agreed, and she says, okay, well the answer is sovereignty. And I just remember being so moved by that. But there mm-hmm. it was. That's what women really want: sovereignty, the the right to control their own destiny as much as mm-hmm. any of us can. And, mm-hmm. and then the fact that when, when the marriage takes place to Gawain and they have the, the marital night where they're going to consummate the, the marriage, he looks upon her and finds her to be uh, the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. But she says, I've been mm-hmm. under a spell this whole time and and half the day I can look like this. So you get to choose, do you want me to be beautiful for you at night in private or do you want me to be beautiful for your friends in the day? And he says, well, I'll, let's, um, I'll take a page basically from this question and I'll let you choose since it's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And because he allows her to decide her own fate, the spell is lifted permanently. So things like that that I find still still moving after all these years when I think about mm. the conversations men and women have been having for millennia mm. about power struggles and power dynamic and the frustration of of women being controlled. You know, and so mm. when you have these stories of women who learned learned the ways of nature, which have a nice little bow as witchcraft, but really was in every way sort of naturalists and medicine and, and 
and they were fearsome. People were afraid mm. of these women. Um, it's so interesting it's so um lovely to hear you speak about it because you know i when i get people's books it's a little bit like getting a it's a little bit like getting jigsaw pieces of a puzzle but without being given the box cover so i think of it as it's my job to figure out oh is that an edge piece or is that the ocean is that the sky or is that um it's an awkward metaphor, but you but you see what I'm going for is is like I, I don't presume to know where the pieces connect or align. I just do a deep dive into every book and into everyone that I'm going to speak to and and uh, try and approximate where they might fall, but always open and willing to be surprised by it. And this is a real moment of I didn't I I didn't know. I wouldn't I couldn't have known without you explaining it so beautifully where Arthurian legend fell into the, the the jigsaw puzzle of Amy Mullins. Because the Mort Dathed to me and, and my sort of research and my understanding of it is it's a tale of deep masculinity. It's a tale of uh, the emergence of a chivalric code. It's a tale of uh, hierarchy and camaraderie and Camelot, which is very much about men at that table. Uh, it's a tale that's been resurrected through time, quite often in times of political instability, it gets resurrected as a sort of trope of here's an ideal of of heroism, of camaraderie, of governance that works, of a true and noble leader. And I, I think like you, have always secretly just loved the Guinevere side. Well, there's so and, many outliers. Morgan Le Fay. Right. Morgan Le Fay. Um, and these, and these sort of, uh, the, and the forbiddenness around, around women. So, it's just lovely to hear you identify Arthurian legend as a place that you see self-determined women in it. It's a really unexpected turn on it. I love, I love hearing that. I really do. I, I was um, thinking about how um, perennial it is, how 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 enduring it is, given that you know these these stories begin in theory with Geoffrey of Monmouth in you know, 1100, and then Thomas Mallory, 300 years later, in prison under house arrest, writes uh, the Mort d'Arthur. And then, you know, we go on to Monty Python and Spamalot and Joseph Fiennes doing it on BBC or Channel 4 or whatever it is. You know, it's it's this this iteration of this myth. We can't leave it alone. And it's it, it's just something I... I think about it's not a Bible story. It's this isn't a, a quote unquote truth. This is these are beautiful legends that we revisit over and over and will only continue to. And I wonder if your interpretation isn't part of part of its enduring feature as well. Um, let's talk about your third book because this one has just already been an eye opener to me, and I, I was so thrilled to discover this book. I really didn't know it. Your um, third book is The Second Circle by Patsy Rodenberg, and it was published in 2008. The full title is How to Use Positive Energy for Success in Every Situation. And I knew Patsy Rodenberg entirely by name as a voice right. coach. Uh, she's, you know, been a teacher at the Guildhall for many years and voice coach at the RSC and there's absolutely no one of any merit in England whose voice she hasn't worked with and out of England. Um, I didn't know her as an author and I really loved discovering this. Well, this is about 2004. I started taking her vocal workshops and she was formulating this. At that time, it was still strict kind of, Shakespeare and voice workshops and you would do these, these you know, intensives and they were always rooted in, in physiology, which, which I loved because having been an athlete moving into acting, which is, which was weirdly like for me, the sports of it all was a weird diversion from, from, from the, from the true 
the true path, the true calling. Actually, there's been many diversions. But but acting was something I always knew. I, I was my absolute first love as a, as a child. And of course, my dad being an immigrant, it's like, you will be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. You're not going to be a painter or a sculptor or an actor, or an art, or, which is all the things that I, that was my happy place. Mm-hmm. Still is. And so coming to Patsy when it's like, oh, God, I really need to, you know, I was being interviewed in, in outlets, and they said, so what's next? What's next for Amy Mullins? I said, well, one day, I'm going to come back to my childhood love of acting. And then I sort of realized, oh my God, this is, that's now, like that's happened. That, 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 you know, my peer group started this 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, so I, that's how I came to Patsy. Basically she would come to New York and do these, these seminars, but, and they're obviously very hands-on and very, very practical. And then over time, it was evolving. It was changing. And because she works in maximum security prisons, working with Shakespeare text and prisoners. She was in um, refugee camps in parts of Africa. She's had an extraordinary and still has an extraordinary life. And, And she also would be, you know, as the person that, Prime ministers would call to mm. for her to help them with actually standing and, and delivering, and that's something where where Patsy's discussion about energy exchange, where she crystallized it into this idea of that there's three circles of energy, and this is for anyone in life. I mean, I've I have recommended. I have given that book to people who are the editors of huge Condé Nast publications, to uh, screenwriters, to my mother-in-law, to people. Mm-hmm. There's people who, anyone who's, who would find it interesting because mm-hmm. a lot of times energy work is packaged in a, in a kind of granola, crunchy way it's esoteric it's it's something that um, a lot of people find difficult to access mm. and patsy makes it physiological mm. and so the idea that if first circle is the inward the turning of the energy inward it's, it's the person who shakes your hand and you get that limp handshake it's the person whose voice doesn't quite make this you know, it's the, it's the, when you, if you find yourself having to constantly lean in for someone who their, their breath is literally not reaching you, mm-hmm. that's first circle. And we need all, all of these. And sometimes we're in one, one circle of energy and pretending to be in another, which mm-hmm. you always would have that scenario of being at night on a subway in New York and, you know, a bunch of, um, characters enter the subway that feel threatening, you know, that you might absolutely focus on your book, which is first circle. Yeah. But your, your ears are up and you're absolutely in second circle and you're aware and you're watching and you're feeling. And, and I, and, and I certainly think everyone's experienced something like that where you um, are confronted with someone like said, who's, who's, they're painfully shy or they're, they are quite literally playing cool. They are removed. They are backfooted. Mm. Whereas third circle is someone who's, um, she would call it standing in bluff. You know, it's your chest is up and tight and it's the person who speaks past you and through you and around, you know, they're not at all again, trying to actually have an exchange of my breath reaches your mouth reaches your face and I then receive what you return to me. Mm. So she talks about the only like the, the only true exchange and equality in this world happens in second circle. You know, and she says animals are almost always in it. It has to do with exploring something without judgment. Um, and 
essentially having your body be such that you don't have tension on it. But that's why it's something that's interesting for most people because as actors, you know, we, we have to think about movement a lot and say that where someone's center is and their gaze and all that kind of thing, the breath. But for a lot of people, they don't, they don't consider it. And you see uh, how often somebody locks, locks a leg and sort of pops a hip and you're quite literally blocking oxygen. So all of those things where you learn these little, these wonderful stories she would tell us about the fact that Zulu warriors believe that their vocal cords were in their groin. Mm. So she would have us imagine that to think about accessing your your the seat of your power mm. and how if it's connected and the air is flowing and the air column is supported and everything is loosened up and limber and you're not locking your knees, not locking your hips. Um, the, the sound that you're meant to make comes out. Mm. And it's why, that's why a baby voice carries because mm. there's no tension on their voice. Right. So I find, you know, she talks about it, the difference between say having sex versus making love is how people can understand what second circle is. It is, it is an absolute an exchange without judgment. It's complete presence. Mm. And it is hard to sustain. Yeah. It's really hard to say. It is exhausting. And, you know, Patsy has become a dear friend over the years. And when I was trying to prepare, it was a week before my second ever TED talk and I hadn't done it for 11 years and I and now they were recording them and making them live online for the rest of your life which is terrifying whereas the first time I did it in 1998 I was winging it I was in in university and it was a I played hooky from history exam it's like I had a first school I had a ticket to California I've never been a round trip ticket and little did I know that the universe the president of my university was in the audience so <laughs> I was like, hi, I'm skipping my history exam. I mean, I can't, honestly, I can't bear to watch that one from 1998. You're wonderful. I'm going to tell you for you. You are as as present and as alive as any and as self-possessed and charming as any 19-year-old I have ever laid eyes on. You're astonishing. I watched all your TED Talks and, and it's really... It's really remarkable how intact you both were and are and how much the attention and the focus and the multiplicity of your career didn't distort you in a way that it might well have done someone else. I I see the same uh, delightful, enthusiastic, charming young woman alive and well when I watch your second TED talk. And it's such a relief to see. It's such a, it's such a glorious thing to see. Well, I thank you, first of all, but I remember the terror of not knowing, you know, whether basically you can have a kernel of an idea, which is how it always starts with me with a talk. There's one thing, and how do I then extrapolate that mm. to something that isn't preachy but is truthful to, to, to my experience? Ask the questions, you know, um, in a communal way. Like I, mm. I want, I want, it, I want people to, I want to end it and have people asking questions mm. and wanting to talk more about it and wanting to talk with me about it because I, I certainly don't have the answers but it was patsy on that that two the, the the two that i did in 2009 i was i had this just again sort of a wonderful of an idea and just in patsy's flat in london and she would just make me get up and she's like just start talk just tell me tell me about it. I, said, I, I don't have anything i don't have anything past this and she's like you do you have a reservoir of experience and you and I know that you have feelings about these experiences so just move and she basically put me through the paces of the, the actual like, get it up on its feet and start and she would she would just 
like take notes and and that that and then I would I would get index cards with each kind of point or thought or a story and figure out what made sense what didn't and sort of anchor it beginning middle end of stories because that's just what I knew how to do from a, mm. as a kid yeah so that I mean she she's she's been a and a, a, a one of my great teachers and a, and a dear friend I'm lucky enough I'm, I'm lucky to call her a dear friend but I highly highly recommend this book because it is it is life-changing I, I totally agree and relate I'm only halfway through and as I said I think I, I don't know if we were recording yet but Here's my copy, which is already annotated, <laughs> flagged. I've you already done it. breathing exercises this morning. Uh, I, 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 every page has something yes. so delightful okay. in it. And her range, is, as you say, is what I love. It's not just Shakespeare actors that she's quoting. That her, no. her life experience is so lived and rich. Well, she, she works with yeah. CEOs. So she, she works with... And, you know, all the ways in which people cheat themselves out of their own power, mm. whether we, we sort of joke, we, we say something and then make a joke because we're afraid that we just put that out there and we don't want to stand by it. You know, Patsy, and, and, and when you work in, obviously, with the, when the text is Shakespeare, you're so supported by the text, you just have to mm. be able to meet it. But I actually used some of the, the physiological techniques she teaches in this book once in a, in a cab in New York. And I was coming from uptown downtown and it's pouring rain. And basically it was a Friday afternoon and it, this cab driver was angry. He was vocally angry. He was honking his horn. He was racing. He was furious that people were, were jaywalking and crossing the street when they shouldn't be. And I kept saying, you know, it's Friday. I kept trying to, it, it literally was like giving me the shakes because he was so angry and I thought we were going to hit somebody. And I mean, like I actually did buckle up in the, in the back seat, and I was kind I was trying to do this soothing, like I'm going to talk him down. Hey, you know, it's Friday. That's why people are so absent minded. He's like, why are people doing this? And he just, he wouldn't, you know, and I remember my, my real, instinctive gut reaction was to him like fire with fire like look i am your fare please don't drive like this mm -hmm. this is terrifying and you're out of line and instead i i tried second circle mm. which is quite literally i you imagine sending love especially to, to someone's back like their kidney region the vulnerable mm -hmm. place sure and I just kept thinking, don't judge this guy. You don't, I don't, you don't know what's going on in his life. You don't know what's happening with him. But just like, just keep going. No judgment. Send him love. And by the time we crossed, we, we turned onto Houston. And it's pouring rain. And there's a woman standing on the sidewalk in the rain with a suitcase trying to hail a cab and it's five o'clock like forget it you are you're at the witching hour it's the change and it's rush hour and you're trying to get to jfk yeah and he looked at me in the mirror and he said should we should we would you mind like you know would you mind should we see it where she wants to go like basically sharing a affair yeah. i said no of course i don't mind and this woman when she when we pulled over and she said she's going to jfk and he had dropped me somewhere in the lower east side and he's going to, she almost broke down in tears. Wow. Like, you mean you, you're going to take me? You're going to take me in the car where you already have another passenger with the yeah. meter already going? And I'll never forget it. It was happening in real time yeah. that the, the situation, the dynamic changed because I refused. I managed to steal myself, to, to not get pushed into third and meet him with aggression meet his aggression with aggression mm. or get pushed into first and just kind of like retreat and put my mm. you know, hands over my ears and just wait it mm. out. So I got there. It was an, an engagement and an exchange without judgment. It's a lovely story and it makes it even more, more compelling as a book. Uh, let's talk about your fourth book. 
your fourth book is, oh wait, is this your fifth book? This is your fifth book. Yeah. For, uh, Civil Warland? Yeah. Isn't it? No, fourth. Civil Warland and Bad Decline. Oh, yeah. Then we've got nice. Yeah. I mean, anything by George Saunders. Yes. No, 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 no. Then we've got last one. Uh, let's talk about your fourth book, which is Civil Warland in Bad Decline, which is a collection of short stories and a novella published uh, in 1996 and written by the great George Saunders. Uh, I'm a huge, huge Saunders fan. So uh, when you sent me a few short story authors, because you couldn't decide which to choose, I um, maybe I second circled you. <laughs> but I was like, please pick Saunders, please pick Saunders. I was so thrilled to talk about him. Um, and you did. So so tell me why why this story? Why short stories? Why why him? Why this collection? Well, it's, it started with something that my husband and I would do every morning with each other. We would have a collection of something going and read, you know, whether it's poetry, we would take one each and, and read it aloud because yeah. the muscularity of that, as any, any parent of young children knows, it's a different thing to yeah. read out loud and do all the voices and figure out what these characters sound like and just make a, make a bold choice in the moment yeah. and, and jump in with both feet. And so I think it was Edgar Carrot who some of his short stories really are a page and a half when they are extraordinarily short. And, uh, and I loved that going through a, a collection like that every day, having this handoff of, of reading aloud. Beautiful. And then it's amazing. Coming to Saunders because he just said it was like, okay, well, who's, who's next? And, I got a copy of Pastoralia, but it wasn't it was something I, I, I clearly bought at some point in an airport or maybe at the Strand. And I bought, I bought it and I didn't, I hadn't read it and picked up Civil Warland and Bad Decline um, because offloading Mrs. Schwartz was in, I want to say the New Yorker, either the New Yorker might've been Harper's, but that story, I had to read it out loud. And I have since read it aloud maybe eight times. Uh-huh. And I, it kills me every time. The last bit where, you know, the story is about a, a, a man whose wife is, is recently deceased. And we learn that he, they had a fight. They had a fight and he said something horrible to her. And she kind of, left to go grocery shopping in a huff and she's hit by a car and never returns. And so the tremendous guilt and loneliness, you know, he, and he works as all of these Saunders stories have, it's this fabulous absurdist take on the mundane and the quotidian and the fact that, you know, what the hell that can be an American mall and what it is to, to work in one. And he works at a, um, a store where you put on like a, a virtual reality headset and go on a treadmill and there's different cartridges for different life experiences. And he ends up in an act of trying to basically have some absolution because of his role and his guilt in, in, in wife's death he ended up taking care of, of a woman who's a, a widow and is in and out of dementia named Mrs. Schwartz and she starts telling she tells him her stories her, her what she does remember when she has these lucid moments and he he ends up making these modules for these VR headsets and where we end up in the, at, the, at the end of the short story is that he downloads all of his own memories and wipes his own hard drive and leaves himself a note that he pins to himself that kills me every time where he, he ends it with something like, um, actually, let's see, do I have it here? Yeah. Uh, 
then I'm a punch. I'm a paunchy guy in a room with a note pinned to his sleeve. You were alone in the world, it says, and did a kindness for someone in need. Good for you. Now post this module and follow this map to the home of Mrs. Ken Schwartz. Care for her with some big money that will come in the mail. Find someone to love. Your heart has never been broken. You've never done anything unforgivable or hurt anyone beyond reparation. Everyone you've ever loved, you've treated like gold. It, it, it kills me that, and that's something that Saunders manages to get to, I find, in all of his writing is just the desperate um, places we can go as human beings. Mm. Um, he, he um, I, I, I love him and I, I love... I love not just his writing, but his writing about writing. I, I find it enormously, as, as somebody writes too, I find it so to the point and unpretentious and truthful. And, it, you know, his preface to Civil Warland is is fantastic. And I yeah. I wrote some, I, I copied some bits out. I always like to give excerpts where I can, and you've already done it beautifully of his actual story, but... The preface is wonderful because one of the things about Saunders that I think is so extraordinary is how funny he is and, and how un, unequivocally funny. And he didn't set out to be. I mean, he, he tried very hard to write like Hemingway for years uh, and wrote an entire... And then Carver, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he writes this on his wife reading the first draft of his novel, which he called La Boda de Eduardo, which he writes which I think means the wedding of Eduardo. I love that he's not even sure what his pretentious title is. Anyway, minutes later, I peeked in, as any writer might have done. She would have been on about page 10 by then. Was she wrapped? Were tears of joy running down her face? No, she wasn't even reading anymore. She was just sitting at the table, head in hands, in a posture of total defeat that seemed to be saying, all of those hours for this? Honey, where are the verbs? Are they in a separate document or what? <laughs> And what's with all of these compound words, this word banter, this disclarifying clapple muddle? I just love that. Honey, where are the verbs? Are they in a separate document or what? It's just fucking genius. Anyway, and one of the things that I loved is this observation. He said, if I put a theme park in my story, my prose improved. The faux Hemingway element having been disallowed by the setting. Placing a story in a theme park became a way of ensuring that the story would lurch over into the realm of the comic, which meant I would be able to finish it, and it would not collapse under the conceptual or thematic weight that I tended to put on a so-called realist story. The wisdom in that of saying, if I put it in the, if I literally place it in the absurd, it will allow me to be my full self. I will lose the strictures that I have imposed on my prose because it's in, you know, a terrible water theme park or a Civil War recreation park or a mall where we'll transplant, you know, memories into your brain. I, I, I'm so struck by that. I'm so struck by the brilliance of that idea of just take the same story and transpose the setting. What happens if you put it at the Santa Monica Pier? What happens if you put it at the trampoline place I take my kids to? What is that love story then? I just... I think it's a stroke of genius to to have arrived at that at that conclusion. Yeah. And, and he's so generous by sharing all of these stages of his evolution. Yeah, with us, I, I, I that that's something I also love about his his general being. In the is he's generous. You know, he's I, generous. I watched his commencement speech again this morning. Just, what he did yeah. on time, you know, and it's so. They're hard. Commencement speeches are, are hard. It had to do with you. And the fact that it's just so, again, clean and simple and unpretentious and true. You know, it's, it's absolutely, you can see him when he says, I don't regret having been poor, you know, on and off. You can see him in that, in that snowsuit that his wife made for him when he's biking along the canal to, to the, work where he has to write horrible sort of industrial manuals and he sort of uses the Xerox machine to mm -hmm. use the work time to write. I love his honesty and I love his um, 
the compassion he has for, again, it's, it's very much in alignment with that, with the second circle idea. He, he doesn't judge any of these people. And yeah. he, it, it's something for me in the tradition of uh, the American comic writing that makes me think of Monty Python. It makes me think of that there's just this extraordinary celebration of the absurd done mm. delivered dead straight. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, let's talk about your last book. Your last book is the liars club by Mary Carr, which was published in 1995. Uh, I love all of Mary Carr. I, I keep her, um, I have the art of memoir. Yeah. Yes. To go to, as is the reading list, the suggested reading list that she has at the back of it. Um, I think she's, I think she's a gifted writer, and I think she's an even more gifted teacher of memoir. Um, but tell me when you read Liars Club and why this is formative. Why? How did this shape you? I read it last year. Oh, um, wow! Quarantine. Ah. I, I got stuck in California. They were the first day to lock down. I was supposed to be here there on a two week, uh, just meetings for two weeks, hit it hard, get and, and get out. And we got stuck for, for months. And wow. so my a bunch of, of friends of mine that were mainly uh, painters and sculptors and one screenwriter um, formed a book group and started with, we just wanted to read great women. You know, we, we, we started with Toni Morrison and then very quickly it was like, why do we have to be constrained to women? And it was Yerzy Kaczynski. We read the painted, you know, we, we started going down this very dark, it was like, we're, we're actually living in scary times. We keep, <laughs> keep going this way. And, and one of the vote, one, you know, she, she won the next vote for our, our third or fourth book that we read. And I, just I loved it I loved it I savored it for me I have avoided writing a lot of my own stories even though I've been asked to since my early 20s to, to mm -hmm. write a book and it's it's like giving birth for me it's not pleasurable in fact I'm, I'm always so my husband loves to write and you know, obviously I have to write when I do these talks, I, I can, I can, but mm -hmm. it's not the freeing, wonderful experience that I wish it were for me. I don't know anyone who describes writing as a freeing, wonderful experience. Just for the record, yeah. I talk to my husband; he loves it. He loves. Uh, I don't he know anyone putting himself in a closet doing that. <laughs> my husband is is nothing but a writer, and and hates it with every bone of his body, fights it for all your his words. So anyway, oh, if any, it, I, I thought it was don't wait for it to become pleasurable to start. But anyway. I loved the way that Mary Carr tackled a, what could be construed as a difficult upbringing, a, um, difficult family life. And again, she wrote about it with such levity and compassion and insight and that got, it got me very it got me so excited because I thought oh I see a way in like I could um I, this this is a, I was inspired by it I was inspired mm -hmm. by her irreverence her um the fact that sometimes she didn't even remember, you know, she said that. I'm not even sure if I remember this right. Or, you know, she she's honest about, but this is how, but this is how, this is what I remember and how I remember. And my sister Lisa says it's absolutely not true. Or you know, yeah. um, I love, I loved how unprecious she was with those stories, and I just wanted to, you know, her sister died, I think, last year. Oh, really. Um, Lisa, yeah, which again, for someone I've never met, actually, I was in pain on behalf of her because she just sounded like such a, I mean, that word pistol that mm. used to be used 
about women in the 30s, you know, yeah. 40s, pistol. Both of them. There's a great, the there's a great anecdote um, that I wrote from the book that I wrote down, which is about her sister. After I grew up, the only man ever to punch me found himself awakened two nights later from a dead sleep by a solid right to the jaw, after which I informed him that should he ever wish to sleep with me again, he shouldn't hit me. My sister grew up with an almost insane physical bravery. Once in the parking lot outside her insurance office, she brushed aside the twenty-two pistol of a gunman demanding her jewellery. Fuck you, she said, and opened her Mercedes while the guy ran off. The police investigator made a point of asking what her husband did, and when she said she didn't have one, the cop said, I bet I know why. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, they really... It's just a treat. And if anyone hasn't read her writing, we think about the fact that she and George Saunders and Toni Morrison and David Foster Wallace were all teaching Mm. at Syracuse at the same time. I kept thinking, like, what is in the water up there? What must have been, yeah, right? Oh, how fantastic to to be in that. Did you, so just to, for those that don't know, so, so Liars Club is very specifically about her alcoholic dysfunctional family a mother who's uh, sort of almost catatonic and and has these impenetrable silences that are very very hard for the two girls to decipher uh, an alcoholic dad who goes to a bar which is where he meets his friends and they gamble which is the name the, the, of, of the book the liars club is the name of the, the little gang of misfits down there um and then and the, they were the, married and divorced a few times, right? Her parents. They got her mother was married six times, and she married her father twice. Yes. Um, and then, so it's the dis, but it's the dissolution and the divorce of their ultimate divorce, and it's an extraordinary thing because her humor again. It's the same with Saunders to create these deeply painful situations and find, in her case, what feels very specifically. East Texas, dry, gravelly, um, outspoken, uh, deeply idiomatic. There was a great, um, I wrote it down because I loved it so much, a great expression. She described a woman as having a butt like two bulldogs in a bag. (laughs) There you go. That's fantastic. I see that butt. Um, (laughs) Anyway, just I, I, I was really glad to see her name on the list because I, I, I think she's a great, I think she's a great storyteller. I really do, and I think she has mastered the art of fusing um, a detailed memory with absolutely not an ounce of self pity or pathos, and and rendering it in this in this way that's so immediate and yet you can't help feeling like, how the fuck did you survive this childhood? I mean, how did you come out intact? Have you read Cherry? Have you read Lit and the others? I've read Lit, yeah, but not all all of her works yet. Yeah, Um, Uh, you'll you'll love. They're they're all as as sort of thrilling. I hope this has made you reconsider writing. I hope this is going to inspire you to put a little something. Well, certainly it's made me, you know, there is... I think you realize that instilling a love of reading in any young person is one of the biggest gifts you can give them. Yeah. It, it may develop into a love of writing. It may develop into a love of, of storytelling in a, in, a, in a more performative way, but um, at the very least it is a way in which we self-soothe mm. and, you know, either escape realities that otherwise prove inescapable or we make friends in these other worlds Mm. and some of those some of those imaginary relationships are the the strongest especially Mm. if you're you know a strange kid or you're you know not popular or you're you're not I you know, remember my, my, my stockings always had rips in them and holes. Like I, on Easter Sunday, I couldn't, I couldn't get through an hour and a half, quote unquote, looking nice. There's just going to be, 
I was going to be out there with my cousins were all boys basically and mm-hmm. getting dirty. Yeah. And it just, I, I just remember the look on some of my, like my godmother's face, who I love, but she was kind of like the Martha Stewart of our family. She was just impeccable. <laughs> and it was that look of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> disappointment. But yet, you know, she knew I, that's just who I, that's just who I am. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and luckily my parents didn't try to break that. I'm struck listening to you. I'm going to read this line to you from The Wicked Pigeon Ladies in the Garden, your first book. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world who behave in two different ways when something unexpected happens. Most people take a step backward. A few step forward with a clenched fist. Maureen was one of these. I would argue that you, Amy Mullins, are one of those as well. Um, I try. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. This has been an absolute delight and so fun to sit hearing about you and your books and your journey, your your many journeys, and you're just an inspiration and a pleasure to talk to. You really are. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for inviting me, Sonia. This was really great, and I look forward to listening to so many more of your episodes. Well, my deep thanks to Amy for that conversation. My daughter and I have already started The Wicked Pigeon Ladies, and it's as gothic and weird and glorious as she promised. Uh, The Second Circle, I am loving. It's a fabulous book that stays with you. I find myself walking into a room and wondering who's in Second Circle and whether I am. Uh, It's written for everyone, really, not just actors. It's a brilliant, accessible book full of insight and anecdote. I highly recommend that. And I love chatting about Mary Carr's work, too. Memoir is a genre I adore and read a lot of and aspire to, maybe. Uh, Whose memoirs have you loved? Do you prefer autobiography or biography? Or are you just a fiction person? What makes a good memoir, in your opinion? Leave your answers on the Instagram page and see if you pick up some recommendations there, too. Thank you to Amy again for making the time and going to such trouble with your books. And thank you to Bree Weiss for condensing this epic talk down to a manageable size. As ever, you can find the books that we talk about in the show notes or on the website. Please like and subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps. My guest next week is my final guest of the season, the extraordinary Dan Hauser creator of the video game you might have heard of, Grand Theft Auto. Mm-hmm.